The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You can see contemporaneous correspondence that describes the disruptive and destructive impact that these strikes are having the ways in which uh, they are limiting mobility, the ways in which they're limiting ability to communicate with the rest of the network, the difficulty in replacing people who are sufficiently capable, um, and eventually, in that case, the directive by bin Laden himself to evacuate leadership from the tribal areas, right? And in addition, in, in other kinds of cases, there are interviews, right, that just help flesh out uh, what the numbers can tell us. So I, what I tried to do was, you know, take a look at all those forms of evidence and come to the best conclusion that I could draw about what the impacts had been. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast of June 8th, 2022. What does the American public actually know, concretely, about the effectiveness of U.S. drone strikes? I sat down with Mitt Regan, a professor at Georgetown Law School and the co-director of its Center on National Security and Law, who seeks to answer this question in his new book, Drone Strike, Analyzing the Impacts of Targeted Killing. We discussed his deep analysis of the empirical literature on the effectiveness of targeted strikes outside active theaters of combat against al-Qaeda and affiliates, and the impact of these strikes on civilians. We also explore the theoretical challenges to real empirical knowledge of these questions, the extent to which drone strikes have contributed to security within the United States, and what his findings imply about the consequences of the impact of the Afghanistan withdrawal. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 8th, an empirical analysis of targeted killing. You have a new book called Drone Strike, Analyzing the Impacts of Targeted Killing. What is a targeted killing and why did you write this book? Well, a targeted killing, as I focus on it in the book, is a lethal strike against a member of a terrorist organization. Uh, and I focus in particular on strikes against members of al-Qaeda, right, in areas outside of what I call war zones, that is, outside theaters of active combat. And the predominant number of those, overwhelmingly, have been in Pakistan, principally in the federally administered tribal areas there, in Yemen and in Somalia. And I focus on 
these types of strikes for a couple of reasons. One is they really heralded a new era in modern conflict. The idea was that the U.S. would be able to address threats to the homeland from al-Qaeda, right, by using lethal force in locations in which access was denied or extremely limited, or they didn't want to engage for various reasons in major military operations. So the idea was that, well, look, these are, you hear the word quite often, surgical, right? They target only militants. They save civilian lives. They don't put U.S. lives at risk, right? And they avoid large-scale military operations, which can be destructive both for service members and for civilians, right? And so this was, in in a sense, the prequel, if you will, to what the the current administration, the Biden administration, calls over-the-horizon counterterrorism capabilities, right? There were, of course, there have been uh, strikes by drones and other platforms. And the title of the book, Drone Strike, uh, refers really to what is sort of seen as the paradigmatic or sort of symbolic version of targeted killing. There have been other platforms used as well. But those have been used in combat theaters like Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, uh, in Syria, But in those cases, they've been used essentially similarly to the way that we use other military assets, right, for close air support or for targeting military objects or military forces, right? And those have been, frankly, much less controversial than their use outside of war zones. In those theaters, while they have some distinctive uh, technical capabilities, right? Their use is similar to the use of other kinds of military assets. In addition, it's extremely difficult to isolate and distinguish the effects of targeted strikes in those theaters to separate those out from the effects of all the other military operations that are going along, right? So my my thinking uh, really was that, although I started the book before the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, my thinking is, look, it's been 20 years the U.S. has engaged in these kinds of operations with ebbs and flows in various places pretty intensively. They have been controversial uh, in many quarters. And In the debate over them, I was really struck by the way in which both supporters and critics would make these various sorts of assertions about facts on the ground without any kind of empirical support. So, you know, I thought, well, look, what do we really know about the impacts of these strikes? How effective have they been against terrorist groups? Uh, What have they caused in terms of civilian casualties? What have been the effects on local populations, both physically and in terms of attitudes uh, toward the U.S.? So that was really those are really the motivation for for the focus in the book. Great. So I just want to focus on a couple of things you just said. So the book is basically a comprehensive assessment based on all available empirical data of the effectiveness of targeted strikes as a counterterrorism tool 
the impact on civilians, as you just said, and the impact on local populations. So before we get to what the evidence says and what you found, just a few definitional questions. You only focus on Al-Qaeda and affiliates and not ISIS. Why is that? Well, that's because the majority of strikes against ISIS have been in theaters of armed conflict uh, in Syria and Iraq. In addition, uh, there are very, very few studies about the impacts of strikes against ISIS compared to the pretty substantial literature on uh, the effectiveness of strikes against al-Qaeda. Why is that? Why, why so few studies on ISIS? Well, I think going back you know, to, to what I said about their use in active uh, theaters of combat, methodologically, it can be very difficult to know, well, how much did a strike against a particular leader while other military operations were going on contribute to the defeat, if you will, uh, of a particular terrorist organization? Or how much did it weaken that group Those are things that are very difficult to tease out. And again, I think the strikes against ISIS have been less controversial, with some exceptions we can talk about, uh, because of the fact they are used uh, as part of regular military operations. What has made the strikes against al-Qaeda more controversial is that they're used in areas in which there really isn't, there aren't active hostilities going on. And so this raises the question, you know, if you're in uh, a conflict with a non-state uh, armed group, where exactly is the battlefield? Where is it appropriate to use lethal force? Where is it not? And those are questions I think that should be informed about just precisely what is being accomplished or not at cost to whom in those kinds of operations. So you focus primarily on what on drone strikes, but you also include within targeted killing an assessment of piloted strikes. Is that right? That's right. And do you include strikes by special operations forces? Yes, those, uh, those are certainly included. Uh, as you know, there has been targeting both by the Department of Defense, special operations forces, and what is commonly assumed to be Central Intelligence Agency. The Data on strikes that are available, predominantly gathered by uh, NGOs such as New America or Bureau of Investigative Journalism, includes data on on both kinds of strikes. Just to make sure I understand, yeah, are you talking about strikes on the ground by individuals doing targeted strikes? Is that included? When you say strikes on the ground, you mean what exactly? I mean, special operations forces going in on an overnight mission, raiding a village. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. No, no, I'm talking about aerial strikes. Right. So, so then one, one conceptual question I have yeah. is, uh-huh. doesn't the fact that there are massive special operations uh, forces using targeted strikes on the ground outside of traditional war zones, wouldn't that confound the empirical analysis for the same reasons that you say it does within war zones? It could. It's hard to know how many of those occur. And in many cases, those are capture operations uh, based on the desire to gain intelligence. I think the sense is that the the aerial strikes, using strikes with aerial assets, are the predominant uh, form of those kinds of 
lethal operations uh, outside war zones. And indeed, you know, one of the challenges uh, is that you're going to be using these kinds of aerial platforms precisely in areas where it's difficult to gain access, right? These are remote areas. The, the tribal areas are really quite formidable, both uh, in terms of their terrain and topography, as well as restrictions. Similarly, in, in areas in Somalia and in Yemen, there are some special operators there. They're likely not a substantial number compared to the capability to to use airframes, right, that can loiter over an area for an extended period of time uh, and then execute a strike. All right. So let's get to the sources of evidence that you used. I mean, how did you go about figuring out, answering these questions, whether these targeted airstrikes were an effective counterterrorism tool, their impact on civilians? I mean, you didn't do the empirical research yourself, or did you do some? Yeah, so you, you asked, uh, how did I approach it? No, I didn't do it, do original research myself. Um, I took a look, first of all, at um, there are probably 60 or so empirical studies that I looked at uh, that focus on different topics with respect to the different kinds of impacts from strikes. So I delved into that literature and tried to look at that really closely and and gain a sense of what kinds of findings are there. What's the, what were the scope of the findings? What are the limitations? What are uh, reasonable conclusions we could draw from them? What are more qualified? Those kinds of things. So I began with that uh, just in the hope that, all right, maybe we can get some rigorous understanding uh, based on social science that can tell us uh, about something about these impacts. but. I felt the need also to complement that by taking a look at a host of uh, qualitative uh, materials, right? So, for instance, with respect to whether strikes against al-Qaeda core leadership in the tribal areas helped reduce the risk of attacks in the U.S., for instance, None of the studies are rigorously structured to address that question. There are some that purport to do so, but there are limitations that I describe in the book. But if you go to al-Qaeda correspondence, right, among core leadership during the period in which strikes escalated in the tribal areas, right, and the West Point has a repository, a substantial amount of al-Qaeda correspondence, you can see contemporaneous correspondence that describes the disruptive and destructive impact that these strikes are having, the ways in which uh, they are limiting mobility, the ways in which they're limiting ability to communicate with the rest of the network, the difficulty in replacing people who are sufficiently capable, um, and eventually, in that case, the directive by bin Laden himself to evacuate leadership from the tribal areas, right? And in addition, in in other kinds of cases, there are interviews, right, that just help flesh out uh, what the numbers can tell us. So what I tried to do was, you know, take a look at all those forms of evidence and come to the best conclusion that I could draw about what the impacts had been. So let me just say that in reading the book, several things to, to, to compliment you on what you accomplished. First of all, I'm surprised that this book hasn't been written yet, that there hasn't 
and a comprehensive study of all the studies, combining the quantitative and qualitative evidence. So that in itself is an accomplishment, but also you really did bring, I mean, you know, you brought a, a social science and economist perspective on these various studies, telling us which parts were valuable, which parts weren't. And the combination of those two things, the comprehensiveness of your study of the studies, looking at the combined quantitative and qualitative evidence, and then your kind of skeptical, critical uh, a take on them it, it is immensely valuable. I'm, I, have, I compliment you on that, and I'm surprised it hasn't been done yet. Well, thank you. I, pre- I appreciate that. And, you know, look, I, I, I want to put as much of the material out there so others can look at it and draw their conclusions. But, you know, uh, what I'm hoping is that the debate is on that level rather than just sort of broad assumptions, you know, without any kind of uh, attempt to uh, document them empirically. Right. And it, well, it's very useful to have all the evidence laid out in one place. So let's talk about your claims and your findings, your conclusions. I think we have to start by, so you focus on Al-Qaeda. And I think to understand your conclusions, we need you need to explain how you divide up Al-Qaeda. Yes. So, uh, and this is, this is pretty conventional in the literature. Basically, four components. One is what's called Al-Qaeda core, AQC, the core leadership. The second is uh, affiliates in various locations, such as Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, AQAP, or, or Al-Shabaab. And, and there, there have been an increasing number of Al-Qaeda affiliates uh, in the last several years. The third category is groups that work with and sometimes are supported by Al-Qaeda, but are not formally affiliated with it. The uh, Pakistani Taliban, uh, the Tareke Taliban, or the TTP is an example of that. It was a group, for instance, that attempted the, uh, the car bombing in Times Square in 2010. Uh, the group Jamai Ismala in uh, Indonesia was assisted by Al-Qaeda Corps in conducting attacks, uh, the attacks in Bali in 2002. So there are those groups that sort of work with uh, Al-Qaeda uh, on a perhaps a, you know, a, a periodic basis. And then there finally are individuals who are inspired to some extent by Al-Qaeda. There might be some contact with uh, Al-Qaeda, but the, the initiative really lies with those individuals. So that's the, the sort of structure. And, and I think the important thing to, to keep in mind is that Al-Qaeda is not, never really has been or aspired to be a hierarchical command and control organization. Right. The uh, the leadership saw itself as the vanguard of a mass movement in which there was considerable decentralization and considerable autonomy of the local cells to decide when and where to attack. The role of the leadership was to provide guidance on in broad terms about about what types of targets were appropriate, what should be priorities. And so you see in the correspondence with bin Laden, for instance, to uh, AQAP in Yemen, uh, advising them on not getting embroiled in conflicts with the local police, but trying to focus more on attacks against what's called the far enemy, which is the U.S. uh, in the West. And you see sometimes those affiliates take that advice and sometimes they don't. Right. The thing that Al Qaeda Corps had uh, in Afghanistan 
which it was able to recreate to some extent in the tribal areas in Pakistan, was the ability to plan and coordinate uh, attacks against the far enemy and to conduct training, uh, to run training camps uh, for people who would engage in those sorts of missions, right? So that enabled Al-Qaeda Corps to have a capability and a set of resources that it could use itself to plan and coordinate uh, attacks in the West without having to rely on and sort of control local affiliates who may or may not be interested in doing that because they have their own uh, battles to fight. So on that, on that score, one of your findings is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the targeted strikes against Al-Qaeda Corps during the relevant period in the relevant places was... I think you'd say largely disruptive, but did not reduce the overall number of Al-Qaeda attacks. Is that right? That's right. And that's consistent with, with the literature, you know, on, on when leadership targeting is effective. Can you just explain? Can you explain? Yes. The, 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 the broader literature on leadership targeting, and which I include in, 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 in the book, indicates that after a group's been in existence for a few years, it, it often develops sort of standard uh, routine processes and procedures, lines of succession, you know, ways of doing things, right, that make individual leaders less uh, crucial to the functioning of the organization. It gives it some resilience. So you, you might say, and it's, you have to be careful using this word in this context, you might say it has a certain bureaucratic feature. At the same time, uh, again, as I said, it's not a hierarchical command and control organization. So there is considerable decentralization, uh, right, as well. And so what that means is that the ability of the local affiliates of al-Qaeda to conduct attacks uh, and, and them seizing on opportunities to do that is not going to be determined by what leadership directs. It's not the case that they wait for instructions from leadership and then carry out uh, those kinds of activities. They're going to be doing that on their own, right? And so the combination of that bureaucratic resilience, which makes any individual less significant to the uh, overall organization, and the fact that you have that sort of decentralization, which means that whatever impact you have on leadership is not necessarily going to be reflected in the activities of the group as a whole, and the network as a whole, means that, as I su suggest, attacking successfully members of al-Qaeda leadership has really, the, and the evidence is pretty clear on this, has really not had any appreciable effect on either the size of Al-Qaeda or the number of attacks that the network as a whole conducts. So to the extent, at least the U.S. may have begun this campaign with the idea that this is going to defeat Al-Qaeda or it's going to destroy Al-Qaeda, I mean, that hasn't happened. There are cases in which that's happened, but those are groups that are fairly young and the phase they're in, and sometimes they're dependent on a crucial leader. So, yeah, the first finding, uh, and I think it's a pretty robust finding, um, is just that. 
But let, so let me just ask you about that. I mean, it, it, that's not a surprising finding. Obviously, Al Qaeda is not destroyed. Right. So we, we know that targeted airstrikes has not had that impact. And I have a question about why that's an interesting finding in a second. But I just want to know how you assess, how does one assess that targeting leadership hasn't had impact uh, sort of at the periphery? I mean, how do you run the counterfactual? How do you know that activity at the periphery wouldn't have been much, much more robust than it otherwise is uh, without better organization or, or bureaucratic leadership or at least connections? I don't understand how you can, I don't understand how one can conclude that it hasn't reduced the total number of attacks because you, you don't know what the counterfactual looks like, do you? In many cases, you don't, but there has been some uh, refinement of social science methodology in recent years that allow you to approximate something of a counterfactual. And by counterfactual, you know, uh, we mean, well, what would have happened had there been no strikes at all, right? right. Um, we know, I mean, social science, you know, traditionally uh, has focused on correlation, right? Changes in one variable. Uh, how much did that change uh, uh, another variable, right? But social scientists have always been careful to say that you know, correlation is not causation, right? And so they've been very modest. In recent years, there have been some methods that have been developed that allow you to make more robust inferences of, of causality. And uh, some of those uh, have been deployed, and I, I discuss those in sub-detail in, in the book and describe which I think are, are, are useful uh, or not. But the other, the other I think, point, and uh, I would say the, the second major finding, really, is that the sustained strike campaign against al-Qaeda core in the federally administered tribal areas, I do believe, was a success in the sense that it helped reduce the risk of al-Qaeda attacks in the U.S. and in the West more broadly. That, that's where I wanted to go next, because it seems to me that from the perspective of U.S. defense and national security policy, that's the relevant question. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, you see a lot of people, you, there's many articles, and I, you know, and I discuss them in the book that say, well, targeting has been ineffective because, look, al-Qaeda is bigger than ever. And the number of number of attacks haven't uh, haven't decreased, so you know it's just whack a mole. And uh, as I said, well, that first finding suggests, well, yeah, that's true, but that's probably not the most relevant U.S. Uh, objective, right? I think protecting the U.S. Uh, has been that. And there again, as I mentioned earlier, the quantitative research is not structured as ideally as it should be to get at that, and that's where you have to supplement uh, what you can from that with the al-Qaeda correspondence, right? And so we know that the al-Qaeda correspondence, whether you've got quantitative studies out there that say, or that can establish by social science standards, what impacts were, you've got al-Qaeda leaders themselves contemporaneously describing those impacts describing the ways in which they're curtailing training operations and limiting the communications with uh, the rest of the network, the ways in which they're having difficulty, uh, in particular in one instance, 
replacing the leader who was responsible for planning external attacks outside the the AFPAC area, right? So, you know, you don't, it's important, I think, to look at the, the rigorous social science research, right? But you, you, you can't assume that that's the only definitive source here. And I think contemporaneous correspondence like that is really valuable. And then why, so you, you could still say, however, well, okay, it, it disrupted Al-Qaeda core, they left the tribal areas, but how do we know that had any effect on attacks in the U.S.? You know, maybe that's just a correlation, right? And I think the way to understand it is that Al-Qaeda core has always been the element of Al-Qaeda that has been insistently focused on attacks in the West, right? The idea is that the first, the, the ultimate Al-Qaeda goal is to establish Sharia law in the Islamic world, right? But the consistent belief has been that the first step in doing that is to induce Western powers, particularly the U.S., essentially to withdraw from that part of the world. Because the view is that the West has been propping up these heretical regimes you know, that have continued in power for a considerable period of time, right? And if we could just eliminate that influence, you know, then the way will be clear to establish Sharia law, to overthrow them, show them for the heretics they are, and establish Sharia law. So that, and that has been a consistent theme. Uh, Bin Laden, his correspondence is replete with that. Zawahiri has continued to emphasize that. And so what Al-Qaeda Corps had in the tribal areas were, as I said earlier, resources that it could use in the form of training camps and planning and coordination that would allow it on its own to sponsor and coordinate attacks in the West, right? As opposed to some other attempted attacks in the West that were not planned or coordinated by uh, Al-Qaeda Corps. Right? And so when you disrupt and weaken the component of Al-Qaeda that is dedicated to those kinds of missions, right, it seems to me it's quite reasonable to conclude that the strike campaign in the tribal areas certainly contributed to reducing the risk of attack in the U.S. Now, we know U.S. counterterrorism defenses have been hardened significantly since 9-11. There are a whole host of measures that have done that, right? And so we can't say exactly, you know, by how much, right? But, you know, it's, it's, it's reasonable, I think, to, uh, to say that it did have some effect. And there, there are, you know, obviously there are implications, potential implications now, given the Taliban's return to power in Afghanistan about what may occur there. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So we'll get to that in a second. I want a couple of follow-up questions. One is, how can one figure out the lack of successful attack on the homeland, whether how much it's attributable to targeted airstrikes on leadership, how much it's attributable to much better law enforcement and intelligence sharing and surveillance. I mean, is there really any realistic way to figure out contributing factors and, and how and or how important the drone, the targeted strikes were? Yeah. It's really difficult. There are a couple of statistical studies that aren't structured ideally to do that, but they do uh, include variables that attempt to measure counterterrorism defenses. Uh, but the, the problem is that, well, I won't go to all the difficulties, but they don't give us exactly what we want. But they do provide some indication that counterterrorism defenses uh, of various sorts, intelligence sharing, uh, disruption of financial uh, networks, those sorts of things, have had a, a significant difference, right? And probably are the predominant reason for the reduction in attacks, right? So we can't do that. Where, where we can get some insight, uh, though, and this is not so much on attacks in the U.S., is on the effect of strikes in locations where they occur. In other words, there's a substantial body of research that finds for the most part, there are some exceptions, but finds for the most part that uh, strikes in locations, and many of these are in the tribal areas uh, or surrounding that, result in declines in terrorist attacks and fatalities from them from some period of time up to four weeks, perhaps five weeks, one study suggests, right? And here you see some of the most sophisticated work that's been done, right? Because what you want to know is, all right, if there hadn't been those strikes, for other reasons, would attacks have declined in any event, right? What's the counterfactual? Well, we can't create a world in which, you know, they're, they're a group is, is or and is not subject to a, to, a, to a strike. But what researchers have done is look to identify surrounding areas that are comparable uh, with respect to the relevant variables uh, and metrics, right? And use those as essentially a control group, right? So let's say you find a local area in which the rate of change, not the absolute number, but the rate of change in terrorist attacks uh, has been roughly the same over an extended period, right, as in the area that in which there was a strike, right? And so the assumption is that the, let's say it's 5%. So there's been, it's been increasing 5% a month, okay? Uh, and then let's so uh, let's say there's a targeted strike in area A, but no strike in area B. Okay, so no strike in area B, terrorist attacks in area B, as expected, increased by five percent the next month. Right, 
But if a tax in area A, where there has been a strike, increased by only 3%, right? And you've got your, you know, your comparable basis for comparison, you have essentially approximated a counterfactual, right? So, so B effectively serves as a counterfactual to what it, to indicate what would have happened in area A had there not been uh, a strike. So that gives you a more robust inference, you know, the, about the impact of a, of a strike. Then if you simply said, well, declines in attacks are correlated with increases in strikes. Is there anything about the data you studied, the studies you studied that would allow an inference about the consequences of the Afghan withdrawal, either in terms of, I mean, obviously the the withdrawal of, of ground troops does not preclude targeted airstrikes, but it might make them more difficult, might make them less precise because challenges on the ground. I'm just wondering if there's anything that you could say combining the studies you studied with what we've learned about what's happening in Afghanistan to make and and maybe the impact on Pakistan mm-hmm. make predictions about uh, the consequences of that for U.S. national security. Yes, I think one of the pretty robust findings is that uh, for strikes to be effective, they need to be part of a pretty comprehensive campaign that involves extensive intelligence sharing, widespread surveillance, pretty deep knowledge of the local population, uh, and assistance by local security forces, you know, all of which uh, occurred in Pakistan, right? In other words, the notion that maybe some people had at, at at the outset that strikes were sort of a low-cost way to achieve counterterrorism aims without having to, to you know, commit a lot of resources it just isn't warranted, uh, right? They, they are inseparable from a whole host of, uh, of other complementary kinds of operations. And so here's, uh, I think, what's going to be a really challenging question uh, for the administration, right? We know that the Taliban um, is in power. We know that uh, um, Suraj Haqqani is Minister of the Interior. The Haqqani network has the deepest, longest uh, ties to al-Qaeda of, 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 of many of the groups uh, in Afghanistan. That suggests that maybe al-Qaeda core is going to be able to reconstitute some kind of safe haven, right? And even if the Taliban were not inclined uh, to look upon that favorably, there's a question of how effectively can they prevent it to govern it, right, that country. And so the prospect of a reconstituted, uh, you know, AQC in a safe haven, able to conduct training camps with, again, that element of al-Qaeda's insistent focus on the West I think, raises uh, the risk to the U.S. to some extent. Now, the difficulty is all those elements that I described as important in ensuring strike success are not going to be there in the, in the way that they were in the tribal areas, right? Obviously, you're not going to have local partner cooperation, maybe unlimited you know, operations, but not the way you had with respect to Pakistan, right? 
I don't know how much we're going to have in the way of intelligence sources, particularly human intelligence. We may have difficulties just in terms of how close we can have basing operations. Uh, so that could reduce loiter time, you know, for the, for the drones themselves. In other words, the supporting infrastructure will be much weaker. And that means both that it can be more difficult to identify and locate targets, right? And uh, I guess segueing, if, if you want to, to civilian casualties, it also means the likelihood of greater civilian casualties, just because uh, you're not going to have as accurate intelligence. So let's turn to civilian casualties. So the promise of these weapons was precision, and one of the promises was a reduction in civilian casualties. And I don't know how one would do that counterfactual, but tell us about in general terms, what the challenges to assessing civilian casualties are, the, the interpretive challenges and the empirical challenges, and then summarize at a high level, please, your main findings. Yes. So it's interesting when you take a look at uh, what are probably the best estimates of civilian casualties that come from New America and Bureau of Investigative Journalism, they're often presented in the form of a range. In other words, it can be really difficult to determine uh, civilian casualties. And that's for a number of reasons. There are difficulties in gaining access to strike sites, which in many cases are in remote uh, locations. As you know, uh, with a non-international armed conflict or you know, with any sort of conflict against a non-state armed group, you're not going to have people in uniforms uh, that you can ide- easily identify as militants and the others you assume are, are civilians, right? So determination of who is a militant and who is a civilian can be challenging. In addition, you know, to the extent that strikes have been conducted as covert operations by the CIA, we may not even have knowledge about whether a strike occurred or not. Um, and so those create a lot of challenges just in determining w- w- what's the state of affairs with respect to civilian casualties. For many years, the U.S. essentially said it wasn't causing any, but there were intensive investigations by a number of NGOs that indicated that there, there were such casualties. I would. I think it's fair to say in the early years, when I say early years, I mean up through maybe 2000, even through 2012, the rate of casualties was probably was higher than it should have been. I mean, that's a normative question. All right. You know, but, um, but what do you mean? What do you mean, do you mean by that? What I mean is that the U.S. probably was not taking sufficient precautions to try to minimize the number of casualties that it was causing, right? I mean, it could have it could have taken greater precautions. It could have taken greater precautions, and I and I and I think without compromising the mission. So, you know, just to give you some data, New America estimates that from 2002 to 2012, a little over 11 percent of casualties were of civilians. Uh, Bureau of Investigative Journalism estimates a little over 23 percent, and the criticism uh, of that, the investigations by the NGOs, did lead the Obama administration in May of 2013 to announce the presidential policy guidelines, right? Which, among other things, said that 
outside areas of active hostilities, which are basically the focus of my book, right? The requirement is near certainty of no civilian casualties, right? Now, there's some indication that that policy may have been in place even before May 2013. But if you just take a look at 2013 to 2020, you know, estimates by New America of civilian casualties dropped to 3.5% and Bureau of Investigative Journalism to 4.4%. So I think also there has been some refinement of targeting practices. And so I think it's fair to say that there are fewer civilian casualties. That, that rate has been steadily declining over the, over the U.S. Uh, strike campaign. You're reading the reports that say that, right? That's the conclusion of the empirical data you're looking at? Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, at at the same time, I think there there is continuing criticism, which I think has some force, that the U.S. is still not systematically taking efforts that would enable it to meet its own standard of near certainty of no civilian casualties. Um, and people like Larry Lewis uh, have written and written about this. I mean, there is a whole sort of infrastructure you need to put in place. It begins with making sure that you accurately detect, you know, the number of casualties that you cause. What happens uh, often in these strikes is that be- precisely because they occur in areas in which access is denied or very uh, difficult the assessment, basically the battle damage assessment, which which now incorporates assessment of civilian casualties, is conducted solely by aerial assets. And there are limitations. You know, full, full motion video can't see into buildings, for instance, right? Whereas uh, the NGOs have often visited the sites. They've talked to people. They've looked at remnants of... Uh, of ordinance and so forth. Um, the, the series that um, uh, Azmat Khan has done in the Times uh, recently about strikes in Syria, which are in a war zone, in Iraq, in war zones. Nonetheless, those are the kinds of things they do. They've got local sources. So, And then what you need is to aggregate that. You need to try to determine, well, what are the, what are the underlying root causes? You need to disseminate that. Uh, to all relevant entities in the USG, and then you need to incorporate those lessons into operations. So I think there are still improvements that could be made, again, holding the U.S. to its own standard of uh, near certainty of no civilian casualties. Is, is that standard to be taken seriously? I mean, don't, wouldn't you need omniscience and intelligence both before and after the strike to really be able to assess that and far more insight than the U.S. government is able to get? I mean, is it really a realistic standard? I think we can do better. I mean, look, it's always going to be a situation over which you don't have complete control, right? But there are practices we we have seen, and I describe this in the book, there had been periods or sort of projects or initiatives in which U.S. forces have concentrated those efforts. And those have resulted in significant declines uh, in, in casualties, uh, in, you know, in one case in Afghanistan, in an, in an, uh, an active combat theater. Right? So I, you know, there is reason to believe that when the U.S. focuses on it, it, it can accomplish it. Right? 
the problem is those efforts have been sporadic and they haven't been, you know, the proverbial whole of government sort of approach. And so I think institutionalizing that uh, would be helpful because, you know, in addition, as I, as I mentioned in the book, another of the impacts of targeted strikes is that they, they are unpopular in areas where they occur. I mean, there is some resentment of the U.S., even in areas in which you know people also deeply resent uh, the terrorist groups, right? There, I mean, and then one of the interesting findings uh, I thought from the research is that yes, they cause resentment, but no, they don't increase terrorist recruitment. In other words, you know, you hear people say sometimes, well, for every person killed, you know, there are two more terrorists who are uh, motivated you know, out of revenge to join the cause. The most rigorous research doesn't support that, right? But at the same time, if you're trying to use, to the extent you're using strikes, maybe to buy time to encourage local partners to adopt maybe some reforms that could reduce the appeal of extremism, uh, you know, you could be, operating across purposes if you're creating resentment against the United States at the same time. Let me ask you about the implications of the New York Times series on civilian casualties. As you said, I mean, I think there's very little overlap between what you're studying and what they're studying. They focused mostly, I think, on ISIS strikes and mostly in war zones. Right. They did reveal, you know, massive problems in the way, and you can, you can question, you can quibble with my description, but here's how I recall it massive problems in the government's, you know, the use of intelligence for strikes, the precision of the targets, the interpretation and reporting of civilian casualties. I mean, the series as I read it was pretty damning using the government's own documents. So I'm just wondering, is there anything about that study that led you to rethink what you learned about out of war zones? And is there anything about the New York Times study that gives you pause about the confidence with which the government can institutionalize and do better in this no no civilian casualties policy. I mean, the, the Obama administration really did try very hard to institutionalize that. They claimed that they had done so. So I'm, I'm just wondering what 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 did you conclude from the New York Times series along those dimensions? Yeah, those those are really excellent questions, Jack. First of all. Um, I would say that it reinforced my conviction that when you're talking about precision, it's not just a matter of the platform. You know, it's not the technology. It's the entire set of organizational processes and structures that you put uh, around that tech, that technology to uh, deploy it, right? And Khan and her team uh, you may recall there was a, a, a piece she did, uh, I think it was 2017, called The Uncounted also, which uh, was on strikes in Iraq. Uh, and in both uh, that and the more recent uh, pieces, you know, she did painstaking research, gathering information, going to strike sites, talking to people, right, and so forth, right? And so one thing that emerges from that, just in terms of, of uh, method, methodology, right, is, and this is not, you know, novel insight from me, the U.S. government needs to complement whatever assets it's using to try to assess casualties with those of groups on the ground. You know, they're, f 
for a long time, there's been an adversarial relationship between the Pentagon and NGOs, right? I think that's changing to some extent. But in other words, there are people on the ground that have sources of information that people in the air don't and vice versa, right? And what you need to do is bring together all sources of information to get the most accurate kind of assessment you can. And then second, uh, on the organizational processes, I mean, you had this strike team that essentially uh, was circumventing the rules of engagement, right? Or, frankly, uh, misrepresenting, you know, what was occurring in a situation to try to present it in a way that it, that it wasn't subject, you know, to those provisions. So in a sense, that's, I, I regard that as not operating in good faith. I think third also, though, on the, I don't think we would expect in a theater of conflict like Syria to have near certainty of no civilian casualties. I mean, you, you would try to minimize them as much as you can. It does seem clear to me that there were some pretty egregious failures in, in what, what Khan describes, right? But when you're talking about strikes outside war zones, then that's a more plausible, even if it may not be ever completely attainable uh, sort of goal. And it is striking. I, I think, again, if you just take the date of the PPG or the year of the PPG as your benchmark, you do see a pretty significant decline in casualties, right? So there are, there are things the U.S. can do, I think, to, to try to minimize civilian casualties. And I think increasingly, you know, the standard for legitimacy of kinetic operations, particularly by Western powers that are technologically sophisticated, is are you doing what you could do to minimize casualties? You know, not simply, well, are the number of casualties you're causing proportionate, you know, to the military advantage, which is, as you know, the, the law of war standard. Let me ask you one final question, going back to the effectiveness of the strikes you would think, one would hope, that the U.S. government was doing what you did uh, in you know, looking at all of the empirics that publicly available and inside the government and using these empirics to figure out the optimal way to use targeted killing to maximize national security. Do you have any sense of whether U.S. government policy is is informed by these significant social science analyses of the effectiveness of targeted strikes? I don't have any real insight into that. Um, I think, you know, sometimes scholars themselves uh, are guilty of not presenting their work maybe in as accessible a form as they could or in basically trying to, to get it out there. I mean, they're very careful to qualify and to hedge. And, and, and look, I don't want to overstate all my conclusions and say there's absolutely no other sort of interpretation, right? Uh, there, there's nuance, right? There, there, there can be questions of judgment, right? Um, but uh, at the same time, I think, um, you know, policymakers, I, I would hope, would, would reach for that kind of work more often, right? And even being aware that there may be that, that the findings are not unequivocal and clear, I, I would think they could get some insights. You know, in, 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 th in this case that I'm looking at, you know, there are conditions under which 
strikes may be effective and other conditions under which they may not. Uh, there are certain kind of costs in certain conditions that you need to take into account uh, that are differ- different from, from other settings, right? So the fact that it's not clear cut, you know, in the way that you run a mathematical formula, you know, doesn't mean that you, that you can't maybe learn something from it. Mitt, congratulations on a really informative book. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jack. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, called The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.